a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Chris Claremont, and if you don't know what I write, go to your comic book store and buy lots of back issues. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's program and introducing our special and esteemed guest oh we, that top super special is uh, what i was gonna say well he's an uncanny guest he's a marvel team-up guest just all <laughs> sorts of other titles he's worked on he's a star wars guest technically we're recording this on revenge of the fifth but we are and cinco de mayo revenge of the fifth anyway <laughs> before we get into the usual rigmarole and like i said doing all that good stuff we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them our social medias good bad and ugly go ahead well, I mean, I put up pretty nice selfies. They look good. Go on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at... The Marvelists. You can find us individually on social media. I'm on Instagram and the Twitter machine at Peter Melnick. I'm also on TikTok. I don't know why. I don't dance. I don't do anything. What do I really do? That's what but we want to know. At Peter Melnick, but better. Yes, that's the handle because, well, there's another Peter Melnick, and I'm actually the only person following that Peter Melnick, so it's kind of funny. But... There's one social media platform where you can find Mr. Eddie Wilson, and that is Instagram. At Eddie9193, but not better, but I've got a Facebook page also. Yeah, Adam. So there. Yeah. But also, you can find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, etc., etc. You know, if you got an RSS feed, wrangle it. We'll find you. Or you'll find us. Ah. That's all he does. He'll find you. Finders. That's feet. what he does. That's all he does. I'm sorry, I'm having a Terminator moment here. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes. <laughs> Kyle <laughs> Reese. What the heck? Anyway, Michael Bean. Anyway, you can find us on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe. Five star if you're ever so inclined. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You can all, because I'm just going to mix things up, Eddie. See all that? Yeah. Uh huh, uh huh, yeah. uh huh. You can also find us where you can support the show on patreon.com slash the marvelists and on there you can help support us for as little as two dollars to as much as whatever your little heart desires what but do we, we get that we went down from three to two well, oh sorry <laughs> three sorry it is three as little as three Oof. but as much as you want to pay yep. and when you do the million dollar option or the sorry five million dollar option because then we get 2.5 each guess what you get a hug from eddie wilson great there go the we're gonna eddie. sick eddie on you Great. He'll find it. <laughs> now, for $10 million, you can also not get a hug from Eddie. You know, that's the Eddie repellent. So that's extra. But like I said, on Patreon, help support the show. Get early access to episodes, including this here episode, 24 hours before release, as well as for $5 and up a month, you get access to our Patreon program, The Fantastic Voyage, where we cover all 102 issues of Stan and Jack's iconic Fantastic Four run, along with annuals, crossovers, tie-ins, what have you. We're going to talk about it, just not those strange tales of uh, the Human Torch. They were kind of a... Eh, eh. Well, yeah, okay, that Someone was had, yeah. a corollary somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Carl? 
No, Coral Reef. Carl, Carl Marx? Uh, what about him? Carl Douglas. Great facial hair, but whatever. But anyway, you can also support the show at belowthecollar.com slash... The Marvelists. And, yeah, buy our Dad Joke Immune t-shirt, because God willing, if you made it this far, you are most certainly Dad Joke Immune. It is cool. So, Eddie, I'm going to bestow the honors, the first half of it, upon you right now. Well, first, when I picked up an X-Men book, his name was among the talent in there. It was number 114. It was, I think, 1978. He's been at this for quite some time. We are very honored and happy to welcome Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame member, among other accolades. Go ahead. And he's a guy who has had an iconic run on the X-Men from 1975 all the way to 1991. He keeps coming back to the titles because, let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, he got the X-Men. He continues to get the X-Men. He is a architect of the highest degree in the realm of comics. And I've said this to the man's face himself. He is the Jack Kirby of writing. So there's that. And now I'm in a hot tag again to Eddie. Without further ado, because Lord knows there's been so much of it, welcome and thank you so much, Chris Claremont. You're more than welcome. Thank you for staying awake, too. I don't know what else to say. I'm sure you can do fine. I do stand by that Jack Kirby comment because I love seeing that, you know, much like the King in the past few years, you know, past few decades even, he's starting to get more and more accolades. You're starting to get more and more accolades, more and more recognition. As a matter of fact, I believe you said you had an uh, interview right beforehand with a certain uh, network. Well, actually, not the interview. This is the pre-interview, pre the pre-pre-interview. Are you going to be on Jeopardy? Don't ask. It's, it's, it's across the pond. They do things strange, strangely. Well, yeah, you know, you're starting to, you know, get the recognition as the architect of the X-Men. You're why huh. the X-Men has had such a lasting impact to the point where I'm going through my third read-through on your run, and I'm also that weirdo fan. I'm throwing in classic X-Men. I'm throwing in New Mutants. I'm throwing in Excalibur, which, by the way, is one of the most underrated series of all time. It's not bad. I love it. It's had... but then again, any series that's done with with Alan Davis is already at the top of any reader's sense of any sensible reader's reading list. For myself, every time I was, you know, going through those through my second run through of the X Men universe and I'm experiencing Excalibur, my initial impression was holy crap, this is the most 2000 AD comic Marvel has ever put out. It has such a unique, different vibe than anything else that was going on at the stands or in comparison to the overall Marvel mythos. Oh, that must have been because we were trying to have a sense of humor. It was fun. It was absolutely fun. Well, that's the idea. You know, it's... um, I mean, it was... We just wanted to have a good time, and uh, we got away with it for a fair amount of, for a fair, a fair piece. Let's start at the beginning, I think, if we can, Chris, and that is getting to these characters. Um, I'm sure you've been asked it before, and excuse us for the redundancy, but for us it's, it's a first, that you decided this was what I'm going to do. And, you know, just the process of creating so many X-Men characters, if we can just maybe narrow it down to that. Well, I mean, 
the X-Men obviously was a pre-existing series. Stan and Jack created it back in 62, maybe 60, yeah, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I think Stan was just filling in every open slot on the, on the uh, parameter uh, board. Uh, well, we have grown-ups, we have this, we have that, we have a family, let's do kids. So um, the X-Men were a, a school clutch of five distinct youngsters brought together by a mysterious bald professor and uh, with the social consciousness with which Charlie is legend, he immediately put them in situations where they, they risked their lives defending the world from evildoers and at the like. Uh, and unfortunately, while it was a lot of fun on occasion and had some brilliant stories by both Jim Steranko and, of course, uh, Roy Thomas and Neil Adams, it was not, how shall we put it, stellar in the sales department. So until, of course, Roy and Neil's run came around, and by the problem is that the reports that more, the company has got on sales were literally eight months after printing. So by the time they knew they had a success on their hands, the book had been canceled and Neil had gone back to D.C. So uh, they put it on hiatus for a number of years, or five, I think, where they would, they would occasionally guest star in other titles just to make sure nobody forgot about them. And then in uh, 74, 74, 75, uh, the decision was made to give it another try. With one difference, uh, Stan wanted a more international group because he was going to try and see if we could make some inroads in foreign sales. And uh, therein lay the foundation for what happened next, which is Roy and Len Wein got together, and then Len Wein and Dave Cockrum got together, and they came up with the new team, uh, which ironically, a number of the characters were pitches that that Dave Cockrum had made to DC as uh, new characters in the Legion of Superheroes, which... DC, with its usual wit and and perspicacity, passed on. So uh, he brought them over to Marvel, and uh, they evolved into the core cast of X Men, and that came out in giant size X Men number one. And then, for various reasons, uh, Len had decided to give up. Uncanny with, uh, I mean, he was he was totally cool with doing it. I think as a quarterly giant size, which is 32 pages. I think it was 32 every three months. But Marvel changed his printing policy and decided to make it a bi-monthly instead. And Glenn decided under those circumstances he had to give it up. 
He had did not have time on his schedule to handle that plus four monthly titles. So he he left as editor in chief, and his his associate editor was oh wait me, and I'd been sitting outside his office for months watching him and Dave structure together. Um, Giant size number one, and for my sins, I I came up with the reason or the way to kill Krakoa, hoping in my heart of hearts it would be permanent. Sadly, I was wrong, and uh, so I basically told Len I because I wanted the chance to work with Dave. I thought the characters were brilliant, um, and. Um, Heck with it. I wanted it. And Len, much to his regret, said yes. And um, hmm? one, of, one of the things that I've always noticed was, as I'm going through my third reread through your series, I'm, like I said, I'm including classic X-Men, and I noticed it's one of the few times, at least according to my experience, of you writing the core original X-Men because in that classic X-Men number one, we see characters such as Angel, Jean Grey, Cyclops, Iceman. And mm -hmm. I... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Because yeah, I've never seen you do that before, and I, I'm i shocked like that it really there was not much. I would love to see you know your take on those characters. Well, the problem with it... I mean, one has to look back at Marvel in the 60s, as one should look back at D.C. in the 60s, and you will notice, for better or worse, a fundamental monochromism to the, to the universe. Um, with the exception of T'Challa, who was, was a remarkable exception in the context of the time. I mean, not only was he cool, he was black. Oh, wait, not only was he black, but he was a monarch. Oh, wait. Not only was he a monarch, but he was brilliant. Oh, forgot the last one. He was ruler of what was the, probably, within the context of the Marvel Universe, the richest and most technically advanced nation state on the planet, in Africa. If one wanted a list of taboo subjects, I don't know, well, maybe not taboo, but of non-traditional subject aspect to, to build a character around in the 1960s, but Chala had them all. And it, that, to me, was one of the exemplars of why Marvel was um, so much more interesting and fun than its distinguished competition. Because Jack and Stan with T'Challa went in a direction I don't think anybody anticipated with an impact I know nobody anticipated. You know, and it, it made Don McGregor the happiest puppy in the world when he got his hands on it. And obviously, here we are 60 years later with a movie being groundbreaking, not simply in the fact that it its characters and 
and settings were, with the exception of um, two, exclusively people of color, it got nominated for Oscars. And I think, I actually think won one. And it was it was the Which, first uh, superhero movie to get nominated for Best Picture as well, and wrote, and rightfully so. Yeah, it, you know I think, but leaving that aside, everyone else at the core of the Marvel Universe was remarkably monochrome. So when you when you bring in the new X Men. It was definitely a step in a totally different direction than that. But when you say, gosh, I wish you could have written the core guys, well, I have, uh, you know, and not as X-Men, but as members of, um, oh, God, uh, the team, what? X-Factor. No, 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 no. The uh, champions? Uh, that was Bobby and... Warren, yeah, right, and I think Beast. Uh, but that was pretty much it. Ghost Rider, Hercules, and Black Widow. Yeah, yeah, but they weren't excellent, so who cares? Well, yeah, Eddie. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, it's, if you're talking about them in the context of when that was originally published, uh, it's. I mean, you have to run into the. What I'm thinking now is, is a core question, which is. These guys are out there fighting Sentinels. And I say guys because Gene was, you know, until you got into Roy's issues, not really there. I mean, that's why Gene is Marvel Girl and Invisible Girl, and they're all girls. They all, you know, um, the Wasp is always walking around displaying, oh, look at my latest high fashion outfit. They're... They were very much products of their 60s era, which is to say, from the current reader perspective, totally limited and totally alien in a way. Uh, but if you look at them in the context of the 60s, that's a totally different ethos than what we have today. And, and I mean, in a way, that's why we wrote Len started out with giant size and Gene deciding to leave the group. I mean, that was what became the opening scene of X-Men 94, was Jean looking about as Republican as you could get in her, her very proper suit and her weird hat. I mean, her very proper sort of um, Midwest U.S. hat leaving the team because she wanted to start her own life. By the time Dave and I brought her back, we had updated her in hot pants, no less. But to me, they, they suffered from the era they came from, which is that they were remarkably limited. Because I kept asking myself, don't they tell their parents what's going on? Aren't their parents interested in what's going on? Hi, we've just saved the world from Sentinels. I beg your pardon? <laughs> Um, the money that the P, the, I mean, when you think about what Charlie's doing with these kids, 
It's actually horrible. He's putting them deliberately in harm's way. And because he's a telepath, because he's the most powerful telepath on the face of the world, the earth, as is often repeated, is it really a free and fair decision on their part, or is he mucking around with their subconscious? Right. They're all, see, this is the things I find myself realizing, A, with my own kids, but B, looking at looking back on it 30, 40 years later, and why I think the new X-Men were substantially more equitable in that they were all grown-ups, except for Colossus, but he was Russian, so who cared? And the, you know, um, you mentioned with the monochromatic aspect of how the characters were in the Marvel Age of Comics, versus the you know the second Genesis X Men. You look especially at one character the most, Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler has this look of you know very <laughs> ominous and menacing, but has the most heart. And as you've referred to in the past, he's the soul of the X Men. There's so much complexity in that one character alone that just blows all the other characters out of the water. But yes, but how can you not, looking at it? I mean, the thing is, as I've said more than once in, in many, and at conventions and interviews, he's been like, unlike most mutants, he's been that way from the day he was born. And you've got to figure, either he's going to become the world's most terrifying sociopath, because... Had been cursed. You will pay for this humanity. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, both Dave and I agreed. I mean, he was Dave's favorite character. But our attitudes from the start were: everybody's done the. I'm. I am. I look horrible. Therefore, I am a bitter, tormented soul. You know, who cares? It's been done. What's the unexpected route? Well, the unexpected route is he's cool with that. Why? Because, A, I look unique. B, yes, it does create some challenges in social life, but that's why he's running from the mob in giant size one. You know, but they're, they're Prussians. They don't know any better anyway. I think now that we've all seen... Uh, uh, <sighs> I can't believe it. Dracula and... Uh, Boris Karloff. Not Boris Karloff. Yeah, Boris Karloff. Frankenstein's monster? Frankenstein. Thank you. Everyone forgetting, of course, Frankenstein was the guy. Yeah. Not the monster. But to me, to us, it was like he would come he has to come to terms with it right off the bat otherwise he just becomes a bad cliche and the rationale i came to was he's a, he is indeed a person of faith and his decision was if i i am this way because the creator made me this way if the creator made me this way who am i to argue i'm mortal so i'm to have a good time and prove he made the right decision. And, you know, I will, be, I will be the best I can be at whatever it is I do, which is uh, he's off and running. That's, I mean, the interesting thing is that there are actually, I, I would submit, two moral 
centers to the X-Men, partly derived from the fact that, that Kurt was Dave's passion and John never bonded with him. He went a different way and embraced Logan. So the two of them, aside from being best buds, serve in different respects to as the, the team's more joint moral center. It's just that Logan is much more of a work in progress, much more of a tormented work in progress than Kurt is. And going back to your reference to Excalibur, apologies for the beeping truck in the background. If you look through giant size Excalibur, number one, when we we first see Captain Britain, he's he's going on yet another of his late his mad raving drunk because his big sister is now dead and he couldn't save her. He wasn't even asked. And Kurt just walks in, takes one look at him and dumps him in the ocean. Hopefully, you know, is that his point being you're either going to drown or you'll sober up works for me either way. Um, Kurt is actually the person who takes the reins of Excalibur. He is for all intents and purposes, the leader of the team whereas the traditional thought would be it'd be Captain Britain. But that's, that's the kind of person Kurt is. And to me, that's what made him a whole lot of fun. And I think the, the going back ha, 10 minutes to where we started this, the thing about classic, aside from the fact that it gave, gave the audience an opportunity to see John Bolton kick ass visually, is that we got to see the moments, the character moments, the non-action moments, or the non-physical action moments, but definitely the emotional action moments, where the, the original team interacts with the new team, where we get to see Jean expressing her anxiety about being a super character and instead trying to reach out to have a normal life where we get to see Warren's passion to keep her safe, where we get to see the things about them that there wasn't room for in Giant Size 1 or in the ongoing series. Um, in a later issue, what, there's, a, there's I did a tenant-page story where they're all sitting around waiting to get the news. Will Jean live or will Jean die? And Kurt runs into this kid outside of the hospital, and they have a love, I like to think, a lovely scene together. And it turns out the kid had just died, and he's having an interaction with his soul, the boy's soul, before it moves on to the next stage of his existence. That's, those are the moments that for me as a writer are brilliantly fun because those are the moments that out of space invariably get cut from the action story that we're writing in the main book. And in regards to your, <laughs> well, in regards to your uh, writing ability, you're able to take all these different characters, give them their own unique voices for each and every character 
when you read a Kitty Pride line, you can tell it's completely different than a Wolverine line, than a Colossus line, etc., etc. And I've always wondered, as a writer, how do you take all that, organize all those little uh, idiosyncrasies of each character? Like, what is your process with that? Hmm. Um, which channels and move to a different part of my brain. I mean, they're they're all. I mean, the point is that that's why they're all individual. I mean, in terms of of trying to express them, the advantage of living within spitting distance of of. New York City is that one can literally walk down the street and look at the people around and listen to them and how how people sit on you know on a uh, a park bench how they interact one to another what it's like at, at the bodega or the restaurant you swipe from everything everyone. Um, you file the, the pieces away and, and grab hold of what what feels right, what you, what's needed, and plug them into the story through the talent of whatever artist is drawing it. Uh, the thing with X-Men is it had an extraordinary burst of luck in the, the first 75 issues were done by four people, three people. Dave Cockrum, then John Byrne, then Dave Cockrum again, and then Paul Smith. And it's that level of continuity and creative perception did wonders for both the characters and, and the series. Uh, because once, I mean, after Paul, we had John, John Jr. Jr. Um, and after John, we had uh, Mark Silvestri. And after Mark Silvestri, we had Jim Lee. So in terms of artistic gifts, or gifts who were artists, we had an extraordinary run. <coughs> especially once you add in the annuals, which you're talking uh, George Perez, Alan Davis, uh, Art Anderson, Bill Sienkiewicz. Again, a a whole, an extraordinary amount. Oh, and dare I forget Barry Windsor Smith. You can't, or Walt Tonnenson. See, once I start, we have had such the X-Men have had such extraordinary fortune in the, the visual storytellers that have handled the series over the years. You know, there's no arguing with that. And uh, in the 21st century, we've had Salva, at least my working with it, Salva, then Alan, Alan Davis yet again. Um, the kinds of people with whom you one can sketch out the sequence of events and then just sit back and enjoy what 
comes out of, of on paper or on screen now and play with it. But that's, that's, that is what it's all about, is finding the right synergy of, of writer and artist and from that characters and then through those characters present a way, present a story that will grab the reader's attention with page one and carry you through to the end of the, the issue, ideally on the, leaving the reader on the edge of their seat, counting the days until they get the next issue to see what happens next. And, you know, also in regards to your writing, uh, we got a number of questions from Shane Hagedorn of the Honorable Mention podcast. And one of the questions he asked was, any particular dangling plot lines you were unable to wrap up? Was thinking particularly of reintroducing Stephen Lang during the Mirror Island X-Men issues in a nursing home, but it was never revisited until the uh, Phalanx uh, Covenant. I really hope I pronounced that word properly. You sure? I was the one who introduced Stephen Lang. Uh, well, no, I'll re- reintroduce him. was nothing to do with me. Uh, re- he says reintroducing. Sorry, I uh, misspoke. Yeah, no, I mean, reintroducing... No, I mean... I'm, I'm honest, off the top of my head, I'm honestly not sure. And in all honesty, I take no responsibility for stories that I didn't write which is, I know, a cheap out, but, I mean, look, it, in, my, in my conception of reality, the ex-reality, the Muir Island saga was just the beginning of an ongoing, a long, an ongoing arc that would lead up to 300 and would make some fundamental changes in, in the context of of the Pantheon, um, one of which would be finally, one of a better phrase, getting rid of Charlie, either to a happy ending with Alondra or just killing him, and handing the book, handing the school over to, to uh, Magneto, officially. Um, because from my perspective, the problem with Charlie, aside from perhaps questionable ethics in terms of, of the exploitation of children and, and staring at Jean and going, I can never tell her that I love her, and thinking to myself, A, you're a telepath, and B, you're ideally in your 40s, beginning your 50s, and she's like 18. Uh, what are you, a congressman? Um <laughs> Damn. <laughs> well, it's just, no, Stan just threw these things in for the hell of it. Yeah. I mean, no, you know, it's just how quickly can we establish some sort of emotional conflict, resonance, yada, 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 right off the bat? You don't think two issues, three issues down the road. This is 1962. He, he's trying to keep the company alive while he's writing every flipping book Marvel publishes. But even in that context, if you look, okay, it's 1962, Reed and Ben are World War II vets. So we're now talking 25 years after the war, possibly even, yeah, 25 years post-war. So he's now 
in his late 40s, pushing 50. Sue isn't. There's like a 20-year, at least a 20-year gap between them. And she's got a kid brother. The, the way one looks at characters and relationships in 1962 is not the way they, that they were looked at in 1972. 82, 92, ought to. I mean, can you imagine casting the Fantastic Four today? Hell, look at the confusion, the challenges they're going through with the movies, trying to put this in a actually respectable, socially equitable presentation. You know, it's, it's the world is evolving. The way you throw out relationships in 1962 is not, we are not as comfortable or we are not likely to consider it as appropriate as it, today as it was then. So, you know, that's where you have to kind of redefine the terms of the equation. Um, so, yeah, there, there, are, um, there are lots of stories I wish I'd been able to finish. Um, the problem is that, the, you know, I mean, well, sorry. When I was writing Uncanny back in, back in the York, Alan and I were having a great time when Alan left and Chris Pacello took over as artist. It was like a whole new rebirth as opposed to the previous five rebirths. I mean, I looked at the stuff he was turning in and it was like my head was on fire because all of the potential stories and character evolutions and ramifications that suddenly popped into focus. I mean, for me, writing 21 seconds was, holy cow, this is great. I'm going to kill off the entire Gray family because I have an artist who can do it in a way that will break your heart for the right reasons. And I went out to California when I was writing the, the novelization for um, the first draft novelization for X3. And Chris and I sat down and talked, and I, I couldn't wait to get back and start writing the script, the plot, because I felt in Chris I had an artist that was so eloquent, so wonderfully eloquent, I could throw anything his way, and he could just take it to the next level. And there's only a handful of... of of men and women who have that that potential and that capability. And of course, I get back to, to New York and I'm ready to start turning in work and the next thing I know, I'm off the book. And on Exiles, which I thought was the best metaphor I'd ever heard, even though I thought it was, it, it drove me crazy. So the, the thing about comics, the thing about mainstream work for higher publishing is nothing is guaranteed and you can plan all you like, but you can you will always be cubs wobbled by surprises. 
So, yeah, there are lots of stories that I wish I could have, would have, could have, should have carried forth. I mean, I would have, if I'd had my own, if I'd had my own preference, I would have kept Kitty in the University of Chicago for as long as I could get away with it. Because for me, that was much more fun than just making her another skin type, you know, or pirate you know, like everybody else. For me, the whole point is to find a way to make these people individual and and in the process provide them with conflicts and challenges that are not only unique to them as people, but are far more relevant to the readership. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are lots of readers who want to live on a on a uh, ascension island that's running around the middle of the ocean with a re- resurrection machine that makes death irrelevant. But what kind of relevance does it have to our, our lives, to our, the parts of us that, are, that we deal with every day that can bond the char- us to the characters and the characters to us on a far more complete and, one of the better phrase, intimate level. That's, that's the world I came from, I am coming from when I'm writing these books. It's not to have a big event. It's to have characters that get caught up in a big event and, and make you root for them because you're in love. That's why I love Into the Spider-Verse so much, because that's, that's the the spider movie where you actually the reason you end up liking Miles Morales is not because he's Spider-Man because he's a kid named Miles Morales who's got trouble with his dad, who's got trouble with his new school who really finally meets a girl who likes him and turns out she's from another dimension and oh yes he's got to learn how to be Spider-Man because the real Spider-Man died saving his life or the original Spider-Man, I would say, but that's to me that's cool stuff. It's way more cool than than super guys and super villains, because those are just you know exceptionalists in suits. It also sounds like there's not as much depth to, to the characters than the way that what you just said sounded like to me. But uh, where well, I was but, again, sorry. Never miss an opportunity to talk. Um, the thing, the, the big challenge, the sad challenge is on film, you've only got 90 minutes, 100 minutes, 120 minutes. If it's Avengers, you've got three and a half hours, or if it's Lord of the Rings, two weeks. <laughs> well, I think that was what Peter Jackson said. If you're going to do, if you're going to do, uh, a Zack Snyder Justice League at three hour, four hours. Then let me do a Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings in seventeen days. Sponsored by Doctor Scholl's. <laughs> you know, you can always turn it off, but boy, they must have a huge amount of, of outtakes. But I bet it would be brilliant. But the thing, 
I, the thing I was realizing, if, if there was a perfect world where someone came to me, where Marvel came to me and said, if you wanted to do Dark Phoenix, how would you do it? And I would say, Game of Thrones. You start, you start with the first issue setting up, well, falling in love with Gene, setting up X-Men 100, and you go on from there. And yeah, you stretch it out as long as possible because you want to get renewed and get through maybe a couple or three seasons. But in a in a theater, a TV series with say twelve or twenty hours a year, you have the one thing you don't have in a movie: time. Yeah, you can focus on a character. You can focus on a moment. You can you can deal with consequences in a way that you can only do in a movie if you have the right actors and the right little moments, such as when Tony Stark comes back, gives Cap the new shield, and makes a couple of, of ad hoc uh, comments that instantly tell you if, if you've been watching if you've seen the other 12 movies and you have an idea of, of Robert Downey's presentation of, of Tony Stark what it what it is costing him to come to this moment because if you go back and watch um, was it Winter Soldier I guess the the uh, most recent series, you mean, or the uh, movie? No, the the end of the end of the arc where at the end Cap busts everybody out of of the prison. But when Cap and Iron Man go at it one on one, in a way, it's heartbreaking because Cap is fighting for his best friend, who was turned into a monster through no fault of his own, but is also his only link with his life, except the best friend murdered Tony's parents. Can you imagine a more primal, horrific reality? It's a film where nobody wins. And it, you know, and you think, wait, and the adversary here is Baron Zemo? That twerp? <laughs> and yet, the presentation of Zemo, both in that film and now in, in Falcon and Winter Soldier, is just wow. At what point in time did Baron Zemo become the moral center of that portion of the Marvel Universe? Legitimate moral center. That, that to me as audience, instantly and totally defines the difference between Marvel as a, as a creative construct and the distinguished competition as a distinct as a distinct construct. You look at Avengers. You look, sorry, at Justice League, and okay, they built. You know, you've got a billionaire who builds cool stuff. They fly off. They save the world. Um, Tony Stark. Uh, sorry, Bruce Banner. Oh, for God's sake! 
can't even keep my name straight anymore. Batman goes out and buys a bank so he can give Clark back his, the, the Kent family farm. I mean, you couldn't just buy it back? You have to buy the bank? And wait, where's the FCC and all? Oh, you know, and all of this. Not to mention the, the, tra- the Federal Trade Commission, not to mention the, you know, it's just, oh, for goodness sake. When does it become a bat monopoly? When? Yeah. I think you're way, past, way outside the curve. <laughs> it's the Wayne way. <laughs> By the well, bank. but see, you know, but at, except in that same context, I'm sorry, I'm just babbling, but it, it, it all does kind of connect. You've got Bruce Wayne and... At the end of of the first arc of Batman films, of the the, the um, Chris Nolan films, he and and Catwoman go off together to live happily ever after. So then you get um, Batsuit, and there's Batman, well Bruce, who's flying back to Metropolis to save some unspecified underling. Because uh, Superman and General Zod are, are, you know, wrecking the city. And I remember sitting there and thinking, oh, God, they have missed the primal bet. You could make this a sequel to the Nolan films simply by saying it's been 10 years. Bruce has now rebuilt the entire Wayne fortune because he's Bruce and he can do this sort of thing. And has evolved from from, um, Christian Bale into Ben Affleck. Stranger things have happened. But Something in the not, water. Hmm? Something in the water. Well, but he's not coming to, he's not coming to Metropolis to save employees, not just to save employees. Why not? Because guess who's living in the Wayne Tower in Metropolis? Who? Catwoman and the family. Why? Because it's Metropolis, for God's sake. Superman lives there. You don't have them live in, in Gotham City. Gotham City is a shithole. <laughs> you put them in the safest place in the world. Um, and then when he gets to the building, it comes crashing down. That's why he's so pissed off at Superman. Superman killed his wife and children. Can you imagine being more primal than that? And then, of course, the punchline at the end is, yeah, right. Superman killed Catwoman. Give me a break. Right. Because then we reveal at the end, she's Catwoman. No stupid alien's going to kill her. She got out alive and has been living in seclusion with the kids while Bruce went off and did his, his Bruce stuff. But there, the thing is, it's like, I don't know. My feeling is I would have loved that film because it, it, it derives from morals, a moral center that everyone can identify with. Why is Batman so crazy? Because Superman inadvertently hit him where he lived. That's what we need to see. That's why that's the point that Stan understood with everybody. Peter Parker makes a fundamental mistake. He thinks of himself and doesn't stop the, the, the robber 
he then kills his uncle, who had just driven over to pick him up and take him home. That's adolescent guilt. Wham! The only family I have has been torn apart because I was a greedy dick. Sorry, I didn't know. No, you're fine. A greedy person. That's where it works. You ground it. Logan, for me anyway, part of what makes him so primal is he is totally and forever in conflict. Half of him wants to sit in a in a filthy room drinking beer and doing whatever it is he does. But the other half of him is a pure samurai. He's he is the essence of of a warrior striving for perfection. Knowing, even as he does, that the closest, closer he gets to it, the more impossible it becomes. But he has to keep trying. That's why I think Nightcrawler reaches out to him, because if anybody needs a friend, it's Logan. And Logan responds because if anybody needs someone covering his back, it's Kurt. That's how you build all of this. You find the things that, that make them, the characters, admirable and empathetic for the readership, and you go from there. And one of the things in regards to just overall with your run on the X-Men of how impactful and important it was, and still is to this day, when Marvel was going through their 80th anniversary, they were having all sorts of different events, different tie-in books and whatnot, and they were doing sequels to other books. And one of them, you know, they also had you and Bill Sienkiewicz return to the New Mutants, but mm-hmm. Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross returned to the world of Marvels, and they did a one-shot Marvel's epilogue. And with that story, they told the story... More, they fleshed out more of what you and Dave Cockrum had done with the, uh, uh, what's it called? The area by uh, 30 Rockefeller Plaza with the tree. And oh, you mean more the the the, ice, the rink? Yes. Mm-hmm. And just taking that run, oh, taking your story and utilizing that and fleshing it out even more, how did it feel to have your series, your story, be considered one of those important parts of Marvel history? I'm probably not the person to ask about that book since... No, I'm not the person to ask about that book. I haven't read it. I haven't seen it. I am not in a position to speak appropriately about what Kurt and Alex did. Gotcha. Um, so I'll take a pass on that one. As far as the other half of the question, I don't know. It's like, um, I still consider myself a work in progress. So, um, but I mean, again, John Bolton and I did a scene, did a story based on that, which was, that was, I think, when Joe said you, we have to do a silent story, month. it was silent story month. So how, what kind of story would I tell? And what we did, what I did, and John brilliantly 
his visuals were extraordinary. It was Jean prepping for her date with Scott that night. And it's, um, it's a silent story. So then we had to do it all in the visuals and, and maybe some cheating um, notes or, or uh, a poster in the background. But, you know, there's a moment in it where, where Gene telekinetically pulls up uh, clothes in the, so she's imagining dancing with Scott, even though she's basically just imagining, basically she's just dancing with a sweater and a pair of trousers and a pair of glasses, um, sunglasses. I look at that story and I think, oh my God, that's, that's visually, it is heartbreaking because I know what happens next. But as an evocation of a moment and a person, I couldn't ask for more. It, so, uh, you know, I think part of my frustration is I'm always being asked these days to write or to craft stories set during my 17-year run, um, whereas I'm more intrigued by what, where to go from where I, we are now, um, especially within the context of, of society as we know it today, both with, um, well, you know, it's 10 years ago, um, in the arc of stories, in I think uh, in the mechanics miniseries, I came up with a uh, an anti mutant group called Purity. Only we are humans supporting a pure gene pool, a pure human gene pool. Mutants are not pure, therefore they must be expunged. Out of this, you could argue, grew the Sentinels. From this came uh, Nimrod. Um, you know, I've, I've been, I have a note on my, you know, in, in my story sheet for a group that I want to introduce, MLM. Is it? Mutant Lives Matter. Except mutants by their very nature make everyone else nervous because my philosophy has always been once you go back to the 60s and you figure at most there are maybe a hundred superpowered mutants in the world um, you look at okay there's seven billion of us and one hundred of them we're cool even though Magneto all by himself could probably wipe out the world but once you get to the point where mutants can be numbered in the thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands, as what happened, that's what being what happened in um, New X-Men, it's no longer, I mean, that's an end game. Humanity as we know it is dead. Because mutants are the dominant species on Earth. It's all over. 
and that I have to say takes me to the next question which is okay I'm a reader why do I want to read a story where I'm the the, the side the, the side of humanity that is doomed what's the fun of that you know I mean that's that's the boundary line you have to walk in looking at the concept and creating things what what do you want to say and how do you want to say it especially in terms of enticing your audience back issue after issue after issue and you know that's my opinion obviously other writers other editors other publishers within the Marvel Pantheon have different opinions. So we'll just have to see which works. Chris, on a slightly different topic, can you talk on this is something most recently that came out and how it came about with this comic book that's got your name across the title, the Chris Claremont Anniversary Special? Are we talking about the uh, Nightcrawler? No, sorry, the, uh, the Danny story, the villain, you know, Yes. Oh, well, um, oddly enough, I have it right in front of me. Um, hmm. I think part of it is that when Bill and I did our New Mutants anniversary, our New Mutants special two years ago three years ago two and a half years ago yeah our idea was i mean bill was trepidatious because he hadn't done superhero comics in years um i was just gonna have fun we basically decided this is the next issue of new mutant with no and it, it's the only disadvantage is it took us 36 years to get around to it. Um, and it worked. But at the end of it, one of the things I was always playing with back then, back in the day, was Danny's relationship to Helen. Because as by, by being adopted by Brightwind, her wing stallion, she became one of the choosers of the slain, a Valkyrie, which she hadn't expected and, and wasn't really... This all grew out of the, the Mutants on Asgard uh, story that Art Adams and I did. One of the most cool hundred pages between the, the Mutant special and the X-Men annual that I was happy enough to, to work on. But this is the next chat, the, the anniversary special. Well, the Sienkiewicz story ends with Hella saying, we'll talk later. Well, the anniversary special is the talk. And uh, Hella coming in and saying, look, you're one of my choosers of the slain. You've got to prove yourself. You've got the horse. You know, you're a warrior. Go, go save people. And that's what the three 
um, short stories in the middle are all about. But in reality, what this does is set up what I've always considered to, to be Danny's true destiny, which is at the end, Hella says there there are creatures of evil. I'm not evil. I'm death. I'm part of the natural order of things. But there are there are creatures like the Shadow King who are the antithesis of life and death, and somebody's got to fight them. And you're it if you want the job. And at the end, Danny is basically, you know, I'm Cheyenne. We're warriors. I take I accept the challenge. And I guess what I was saying with that is, which is why it has the sheet line, This none of this will happen until after she actually dies. So everyone who wants to play in the current universe is not theoretically affected. But it's me saying this is her destiny. Um, in the same way that I like to say Gene's destiny is the phoenix. Logan's destiny is to be Gene's consort. Because the point that Hella makes in this story is, you know, you can turn you can turn me down and live happily ever after, but in a hundred years, give or take, you're gonna be dead. In a thousand years, your your tombstone will be gone. In a million years, your gravesite won't even be a memory. Um, you have to look. This is long view versus short view. Um, Gene loved Scott passionately. Logan loved Mariko passionately. But Logan, thanks to his healing factor, is functionally immortal. Gene is Phoenix. Like it or not, she is immortal. The best Scott or Mariko can hope for is 100, 150 years, and then they're gone. Uh, it's tragic, but that's life. Um, and because I, I enjoy cheating at my own diktat, the one surprise in the mix is Kitty. Why? Because when she was younger and someone said, offered her a job as guardian of forever, she said yes without looking at the fine print. Because she's an X-Men and this is what they do. Or an X-Person. X-Men is so politically incorrect and rightly so. The, the key word in that phrase is not guardian, it's forever. And she thought they were they were just it was a metaphor. Nope, it was reality. So she's stuck. But that's but again, this is me playing with my vision of the characters that that for want of a better phrase I defined. Uh, it doesn't mean any of it has any reality because the reality is whatever uh, Disney says it is, which is you know. As it, there's nothing to do about that. That's the way it is. Um, but 
extent, this is me saying, okay, this is my piece of the firmament, and for as long as I can hold on to it, I will. And in regards to, you know, you had done the anniversary issue, and prior to that you had done New Mutants War, Ch uh, War Children. Mm-hmm. It was you reuniting with Bill Sienkiewicz, and Bill, in mm -hmm. the beginning of his career, you know, a lot of fans poo-pooed him as just, you know, another Neil Adams clone, and eventually, you know, you know, Bill took those criticisms and just went all out, did his own thing, and became the first ever Bill Sienkiewicz, you know? So mm -hmm. no longer, you know, copying and pasting or copying the same style, he just went off and did his own thing. And the place where he did that the absolute most was on your run of New Mutants. And what was it mm -hmm. like seeing and giving ideas to Bill and just seeing him do his own thing on there? Fun. Extraordinary fun. There's just something about that run, and, you know, even seeing it on the big screen with the most, you know, New Mutants movie, was it a perfect movie? No, but they brought out so many elements of what Bill's run was. And you know the visuals that he helped uh, present. Eh. <laughs> no, not eh. I just I I have significant disagreements with the need sometimes of filmmakers to love something so much that they want to make it, but by the same time and the same in the same manner, refuse to trust the original material and therefore thereby at least from my totally prejudiced perspective, got the story. I, I see where the, where the director was coming from. I, I disagree with it. But that's the same at it. I also have the same feeling about Dark Phoenix. I mean, Bruno, I mean, I thought Simon Kinberg, I knew he wanted to do a wonderful job to make up for X3, which God bless him for trying. I knew the instincts he had up, up front were right. The problem for him was A, Fox didn't care, and B, once they got into negotiations with Disney, Dark Phoenix got run over by, by Kevin and Marvel Studios. Apparently, the, the joke, I mean, everyone, I mean, Dark Phoenix was pushed back a year. And everyone assumed it was it was right after I think the first um, 
and thought, oh, my God, this movie must suck. No, it didn't. It was actually a pretty good movie. There was a problem. The problem was Captain Marvel. Because apparently, well, not apparently, when they were filming Captain Marvel, they couldn't figure out how to make her cool until somebody had the brilliant idea that when she became binary, she got all of Phoenix's powers because Phoenix wasn't using them right then because Dave and I had killed her, or John and I had killed her, so Dave and I gave them to binary. And so all Marvel did was take her powers and give them to Captain Marvel. Because if you look at the third act of Captain Marvel, she's doing some really serious Phoenix stuff, both in visuals and in what she's doing with her, with her abilities. And to make matters worse, apparently the third act of Dark Phoenix and the third act of Captain Marvel are pretty much the same, the original third act. So Marvel told Fox that, that um, they had to reshoot Captain Marvel, I mean reshoot uh, Dark Phoenix, which took the better part of a year to get everybody together again. So everything from the moment that the character, the, the train scene begins to the end of the film is a reshoot. And the other side of the equation was all Gene's Phoenix effects, Phoenix powers, had to be removed from the film, and all mention of Phoenix had to be removed from the film. So you have a film called Dark Phoenix, which at no point in the film does anyone refer to Gene as Phoenix or Dark Phoenix, and there is no Phoenix until, except to the very end where the camera pans up from Charlie and, and Eric playing chess in Paris, um, and you see this sort of shape in, in, high in the sky, which looks kind of vaguely maybe like Phoenix. So, as I, my joke is, it's not really Dark Phoenix. If you call it Jean Grey has a really bad day, then you understand it's a good film. Um, but if you're going to call it Dark Phoenix, it's a disaster. Through no fault of the director's own, because, again, Simon had something to prove, i.e. that X3 wasn't a shit show, um, and B, that um, he ran into higher authority. So that's why I go into, that's why I was saying before, for me it would be better to do it as a miniseries, an ongoing miniseries, because that would, with today's technology, you, you, can, you can definitely present the effects, but more importantly, you have time to develop the characters as characters. And that's, that's the biggest challenge for any superhero film, especially once you get past the alpha pantheon of the Avengers or the Justice League and into lesser-known people, because you've got to establish them as, as characters you can fall in love with and who you commit to and whose adventures, both in this film and subsequent sequels, you want to see. You have an investment. And 
superhero films, it's more challenging because you've got to establish a character, you've got to introduce the powers, then you've got to establish the character getting used to the cape. Sorry, the character having to cope with the powers and master the ability to utilize the powers. I mean, when you look at Captain Marvel, the first two thirds of the film are her being unable to use her powers because she's got this power lock on and then she gets to use the powers and you suddenly think, oh, God, if she could do that from scene one, this would be a very short film. But then we've seen what she can do there. We've seen what she can do in Avengers. So what can she do in Captain Marvel 2 that's, you know, I mean, she's already saved the universe. She's already zooming from one galaxy to another in the speed of, you know, instantaneously. What comes next? Actually, I could think of what comes next, but, you know, that's just me. Which is, she and Rogue can run into each other on the, on the, on the, uh, oh, you know, on the Golden Gate. <laughs> and suddenly Carol's in a pickle. But that's just me. And but that's, Oh, I was gonna I was gonna segue into just overall with writing something that I've always been curious about with you. Have you ever considered writing a book on writing? Uh, it would be invaluable, to be honest. Yeah, no, because it's a too pompous, b too pretentious. C. Walter's already done it, and also. Um, I mean, I'll say as an aspiring comic writer. My memory's gone, so. No, I mean, it's... I mean, as an aspiring comic writer myself, I track down as many of your interviews as humanly possible to, you know, get under the quote-unquote learning tree, and just saying. The learning tree is very, it's actually very simple. It's, it's... (sighs) Comics are short stories, which are brutal to to do. Um, They are... Momentary grasp of an ongoing reality, uh, but the key thing is figuring out who the character is, what they do, how they do it, and what you know. It comes back to the essential question you ask them before starting any story: who, what, where, when, why, and how. Who are they? What can they do? Where do they do it? Why do they do it? How do they do it? Um, beyond that, it's, it's, it's purely a matter of practice, of craft. The thing about comics that makes it fundamentally different from everything else is you're working with an illustrator. I mean, we did a, oh, 20 years ago, um, Joe and Marvel put together a memorial to 9-11. And it's a lovely book. And so someone, you know, I was signing it at a convention, and someone said, what did you do? And I pointed out 
the page, which was illustrated by Salvador Larocca, and they said, but what did you do? I said, I wrote it, but there's nothing here. There are no words on it. And I said, well, actually, there are 2,800 words. I described the image, every facet of the image, what was in the foreground, what was in the background, how everything felt. I gave that to Salva. Salva recreated it in a visual. I took one look at the visual and knew it needed nothing more. I didn't mean I'd written everything I needed to write. He had created this breathtakingly eloquent picture. Any other word, any word I put on that page would be utterly superfluous. That's the thing about writing for comics. You are not, the writing of the comic is for the benefit of the artist to allow, give the artist the capability of creating the image. A, an artist went to Walter one day, back in the day, and was saying, Claremont's given me this script, and I, my head's exploding. And Walter said, look, you have to understand, Chris is writing as much for himself as for you. All this verbiage is him writing notes to himself. Dialogue, emotion, how, how the character... Oh, sorry, the garbage truck. How the character feels, what the character is wearing, what the mood of the scene is like. If you actually look at it and break it down into the action images, there are basically four or five panels a page. Yes, it's, it's a clumsy way of doing it, but he's synergizing what he needs to tell you what he needs, what, with what he needs to tell himself. And that's, to me, in a lot of respects, the core here. You have to find a way to visualize a moment. What, what does the character look like, both in terms of establishing who, who he or she is, on a base level, but also who he or she is in terms of the moment of that scene, of that panel, as it occurs and as it's moving on. Um, their body language, their clothes, their expressions. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to hire, hire Robert Downey Jr. and say, go thou and, you know, have him look at Thanos and go, I'm Iron Man. He can do that. But I guarantee you, if any of us were writing that scene in a comic, with Salvador La Roca, it would be one thing. With uh, Dick Ayers, it would be something completely different. You know, you have to find a way to balance it. Um so I, you know, aside from being lazy as the day is long, I can't, I don't know how I could effectively convey that uh, in, a, in a book, especially since what I really want to do is go back, go out and keep writing stories. 
very solipsistic and selfish. But there you go. Now, Chris, before we wrap this episode up, first <laughs> off, <laughs> well, I was I was going to say, how many questions have we answered? One. <laughs> oh, Chris, it's been two at the very least. No, um, it is the very least. <laughs> In regards to your writing, not just comics, but you do a lot of novels, and I wanted to shine a light on some of that. What mm-hmm. got you into that form of writing? I feel like Eddie should have been the better the one to ask that. I, did. I mean, the, th- the one advantage about prose is that I don't have, I don't need an artist. Um, it's just me and my imagination and a, and a typewriter. Yes, I come from that era. Um, and the other thing about prose is that it's mine. I don't have to... I, get, I can write the story my way before selling it to a magazine or trying to sell it to a novel, to a publisher and modifying it into the final printed copy. Um, the downside is that, that the banana peels that one can slip on are a lot bigger, and the ground is a lot harder. And, um, you know, it's, it's just a different media. The thing, I mean, that was what was so much fun. <laughs> oh, crumbs. 25 years ago, when um, I sold Sovereign 7 to do, I cut the deal with DC for Sovereign 7. Um, because it was the first time, certainly, they had entered into an arrangement with a creator to publish a creator-owned series within the context of the of the uh, Warner Brothers-owned DC Universe. You know, I had 36 issues where my team interacted wholeheartedly with with Darkseid, with with Batman, with uh, Power Girl, with everybody, the the Legion of Superheroes. But at the end of the day, once we were canceled, um, I got to take them home with me. They're still mine. They're still on, you know, on my shelf waiting for me to find the right opportunity to try again. That coulda, woulda, could have, should have been a game changer in terms of how publishers related to creators um, in well, publishers related to creators in in our ostensibly work for hire industry. Um, I mean, imagine if you could if you could come up with an original concept 
inter integrated completely into Marvel or DC's universe and yet retain a significant measure of ownership so that that it would not even if it went to another writer, if it went to another editor, you still got a piece of the action and the ability to to shape what came next. I mean, from Marvel's perspective, I it wasn't what Ike was interested in because why should we do that? We have so much material that we wholly own that we can't exploit. Why do we need anything more? Um, I mean, that was what Epic was all about. That was what... Um, you know, there have been, there've been attempts to, to do it on the, as a sideboard all for the last 30 years. But this is the first time certainly DC had, had been willing to share the, the, core, the core concept, the core reality. And that was, you know, it was a lot of fun. Um, it didn't work, but, you know, not everything does. That's... I think from a creator's standpoint, it is I guess I look at it three creators kind of were at a game changing moment in their careers in the early nineties. One was George R. R. Martin, one was J.K. Rowling, one was me. And all you have to do is look at what happened to see the difference in choices and the consequence of those differences. And it's, you know, you can, you can view it as from whatever way you like, uh, but That shows you the, the, I think, the breadth of opportunity and um, the challenge of making the right decision. Now, uh, what are some of the novels that you've recently worked on, uh, and how can people get a, you know, uh, get a copy of them? Well, actually, I haven't really done any novels since um, the Shadow Trilogy, which was the late... Uh, that was the 90s. I mean, I've done the two um, film adaptations for X1 and X2. Sorry, X2 and X3. Um, but mostly that's, that's... The challenge with novels is it takes a hell of a long time. And it you've just got to you just have to hammer them into shape. Again, the advantage of working with an artist is you can sketch out the structure of a reality and the structure of a story, and with the right person, you can hit it out of the ballpark. Um, you know, I mean, me and Weezy Simonson and I were sitting there talking about the X-Titan, the 
X Titans Marvel DC team up, and I'm saying, yeah, and then we'll, Darkseid will do this. Just at the moment when Walter's walk, Walter Simonson is walking by the door of her office, and he turns around and sticks his head in and says, did somebody mention Darkseid? And that was it right there. Me, Walter, Terry, Wheezy, Darkseid. Oh, yeah, and the X-Men. Oh, and the Teen Titans. But, oh, and Dark Phoenix. Boom. That's it. Don't need any more than that. Um, it's serendipity. Um, and, again, sometimes you hit it out of the ballpark. Uh, the number of, the amount of letters we got saying Bill's art on New Mutants was, ugh. Except that, you know, I mean, originally he was only supposed to be on it for the three issues of the, with uh, the Demon Bear. And yet we both found out we were having, we're both having so much fun, we strung it out for another dozen issues. And he experimented, and I just, Stared in awe, uh, and tried to come up with plots that would be even more of a challenge. But that's a that happens very, very rarely, and b it requires an artist who is capable of taking that to its limit, but also an editorial reality that can embrace it. Again, sorry, I know I'm running you guys way over time, but it's just, I come from an era where Stan, because I was imprinted by Stan, Stan was writing so many books that he would do anything to get the issue out the door. So if he could sketch out an, out, an outline of 30 words to Herb Trimpey, great. If Jack came in and said, I got this idea. Sam would listen to it. Great. Uh, same with Ditko. Same with Gene Colan. You run down the list, which is why I think Jack was so pissed because everyone was, in his eye, everyone was saying Stan was brilliant where he felt like he was doing all the work, whereas in reality it was a synergy. Um, but it was tossing ideas on the table and letting the artist free, which is does not happen when one writes full scripts. Full scripts, you dictate every moment, every panel, every sense of structure. The artist, like it or not, is substantially locked into the visual that the writer sees in, in his or her head. And sometimes... Like with Bill, that's a waste of time. I mean, I can sketch out, this is how I see the page, which is like the first four pages of, of the New Mutant story that we did, the giant size. But from then on, it was just, okay, here's what's happening. What do you think? And by the time you get to the, the third act, where where Eva Yana is coming up and about to take over the world, and she ends up fighting herself, Bill was choreographing that. You know, I'd toss the idea on the page, and he'd just go somewhere else with it. And I'd look at it and think, 
was that what I had in mind? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care. I have no idea what's going on. I'll just write it anyway. And it works. Um, I could have used another five pages. The, 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 the giggle was my son cornered CB at Chicago Comic-Con and basically was browbeating him to, him to give us 100 pages because, A, Bill and I could fill it, no problem. But, B, the story would be so remarkable. You, you know, just do it as one of the, um, the CB, one of the, the ultra-giant-sized ultra giant hardcovers. And the problem with CB was, he, even if he wanted to do it, he was bound by budget. And so what we have is a really good story that I, and I'm prejudiced, I think could have been a knock-your-block-off great story if we'd only had the room. There you go. The difference between, um, I guess, Justice League and Zack Snyder's Justice League, between the first draft of Avengers Infinity Wars and the final product. Uh, We all have a starting place. We all have a finishing place. But getting there is half the fun. And ideally, with comics, if it doesn't work the first time, you try again. And that's, again, you know, you mentioned the whole idea of creative freedom for the artist. That's, you know, myself, like, I do my own little things. And when I have the artist go through my script, I'll be like, do whatever you want to do. Experiment, do whatever you feel comfortable with, and just have fun. Because at the end of the day, that's also what is the most important thing of this as a creative type, having fun, you know? Well, having fun, but also conveying a coherent narrative. Yes, um, you know, it's just, it, when it works, it's wonderful. When it doesn't work, you cringe. But as, as Archie Goodwin used to say, it's like, you fuck up, you got 30 days to fix it. Because that's when the next issue comes out. And that's it. You know, if, if we are always works in progress. We are always... Um, on a on a very involved and unending roller coaster. So, if we hit a bump, we keep going and try not to hit a bigger bump. But that's it. That's that's comics. And from my perspective, the more I mean, editors like full scripts because. It's all there. They can give it to anybody to draw. And sometimes that'll work, sometimes it won't. Um, like I said, I come from I come from a different era where that the freedom was more it allowed for more freedom, more experimentation, more fun. Um Times have changed and will likely change again. But, you know, 20 years ago, comics were done on paper. Now they're all, they're all part, they're basically a, a program of, of computer 
imagery that's transmitted from one one disk, you know, one uh, laptop to another, and they never actually, you know, I wonder if they ever even see the light of day. You know, I can print them out of my printer, but whether they actually become real in the office, who knows? Times have changed. Times continue to change. The books and the characters must change with them. The trick is, can we do it in a way that remains true to their to their essence, um, but also more, become more entertaining to the audience? The disadvantage when, it, when talking to me, especially about the X-Men, is I'm still here. And I'm still contributing, and I'm still getting pissed off when people go off in a different direction from my vision of the characters I created. But welcome to the land of ego. Chris, I think it goes very much without saying that we truly appreciate all you've done and that you're still doing it. And I so it so resonates when you say work in progress, and that's my methodology too in the career I've chosen to to do and try to do better with so so thank you all around and you know just taking the time to give us a little more insight into the stuff that you've done <laughs> oh wait but we're at two hours and one minute and 13 seconds let's go for three you're all right so the next question no. <laughs> uh, sorry I didn't realize you know I thought it was getting dark <laughs> Those two hours of just pure sunlight after all that rain. Ah, uh, no, just me babbling like an idiot. But I'm very good at it. I've been doing it long enough. Hey, we love it. And again, I just have to say it. You know, like I said, I've said like 15 times in this interview now. I'm going on my third reread of your books, and that's got to say something in regards to the overall quality and overall lasting impact that you have given on the art of comics just the ability where all these years later i'm still reading your stuff i'm still consuming it and l wanting to learn from it and even Thank you know you. reading your newer stuff and again wanting to learn from it consume as much as humanly possible you know and again much like eddie said thank you for everything that you have given us in the realm of comics and in the realm of pop culture in general oh thank you that's that's incredibly kind but it's not just don't look at it from, it's not, I get the same thrill watching God Help Me, Citizen Kane. I get the same thrill, if not more so, watching um, Colin Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death, or Stairway to Heaven, or 2001. Hmm. You know, I, I, the best, and I'm not saying this, because I feel like I belong in that category. But you want, you look at things like that. You look at, you, you know, I've got a book of, of Da Vinci's design schematics when he was designing, of all things, weaponry. And it's extraordinary, you know. But that, when you're operating on that level, that stuff, lasts forever and to be even marginally considered anywhere near that is 
A, makes me blush, but it's, it's also inspires, oh, if that's what they think, I've got to get better. That's a great well, way to look at that, honestly. How else can you look at it? I mean, maybe from the left a little. From the left. <laughs> On your left. To but... the right, never to the right, <laughs> never to the left, forever to the right. Say these books are for our using. Why should we risk losing? We are cool. Sorry, 1776. No, we never thought we'd end this podcast interview in a song. That's great. I was going to say, I was going to bring up something that he might actually be interested in. Uh, you mentioned Citizen Kane, by the way. You know there are dinosaurs in Citizen Kane. Ah. Did you know there are genuinely dinosaurs in Citizen Kane? Uh, there's a part when it's the uh, the restaurant scene or when they're all having the uh, party. If mm-hmm. you look ever so closely in the background, you see these pterodactyls start flying. They reused footage from the uh, 1920s movie The Lost World, and they thought no one would notice. Well, guess what? <laughs> well, but the, they also forget that people will watch it now on high-def 50-inch TVs where you can actually see how bad makeup was. Yeah, I mean, the makeup they uh, used for Charles Foster Kane as he gets older and older... He looked just like he looked like in real life towards the end. So, no, he's much thinner. <laughs> and there's the yin and yang of Citizen Kane. <laughs> no, but I mean that's but no, no. In, in terms of Citizen Kane, but if you look at the, like, I'm sorry, watching Star Trek on high def is, I mean, original series Star Trek mm. is interesting. Oh yeah, I'm going through it myself. You know, it's like, God, you could actually, well, but there's the the great moment in in um, Spartacus when uh, I think in the middle, it's either the battle or it's this great panoramic shot where you've got thousands of of dead soldiers in the, in the foreground um, you know after, the, after one of the battles and it's in the middle distance of the background you see the top of a tour bus going by oh, no I gotta the look into was, that the road was below the level of of the ground below ground level but it was far enough away that they couldn't you know stop traffic and uh, Kubrick just fuck it I'm not going to reshoot <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes it fun yeah mm-hmm. you know it's, it's just the whoopsies I mean if you really wanted to go crazy if you're looking at 2001 every video display is original it doesn't matter, you know, I mean, no matter how small the display, he filmed everything that was on a screen, and then they put it on sc- these little screens. There's no stock footage. Um, and the difference, the cumulative effect is you have this sense of reality. Because if you're sitting there and all you're seeing, as in 2010, are lots of blinking lights, it's like, oh, yeah. I saw that one. This this 
better than Star Trek. But when you actually see the displays that are real displays with real imagery, I mean, last thing, and I will shut up. Um, when I was in university, a friend of mine, mom worked for MGM, and she was a lawyer. And um, in '67, they were they were running out of money, so she went back to uh, MGM in New York to plead for more money for Kubrick and Arthur Clarke. And they were getting really hinky because this thing had already cost them over they were over nine million dollars. And like, this is serious money for any film, much less a sci-fi film. Come on. And so. She's meeting with the board, and, and they just have a, this view of still photographs all over the table. And one of the executives is sitting there looking at them and leafing through them and looking more and more confused with every moment. And, and he finally holds one up. And, excuse me. Excuse me. I, you know, I'm missing something, but when did we establish a base on the moon? And they all look at it, and he's holding up the shot of, of the astronauts going out, um, you know, from moon base to go to the monolith. And the lady said, I'm sorry, what? And this is, this is stock footage, yeah? He said, no. That's all special effects that, that Kubrick's been filming at Pinewood. And there was this long pause, and they wrote to check right then. Because if you can fool the lawyer, he's onto something. But that's, can you imagine? It's like, you can't do it with CGI anymore because everyone knows what they're looking for. But that, that to look at a, a photograph in 1967 when we, you know, we were still two years away from getting to the moon and believing we had a, a moon base already, you know, and these weren't stupid guys, even if they were lawyers. Imagine that, of, of just a, a revelatory moment. That's, see, that's kind of what I find myself going for in comics, is to find a way to reach out and grab the audience and say, gotcha. You know, if you actually believe these are real people, if you actually fall in love with them a little or a lot, and you're willing to hang on for as long as the re the writer can get away with. So I'm still working on that. I mean, Chris, uh, Jack and uh, Stan showed up in one of your issues, and they were real people. So I think you know there is a possibility the X Men are real. You know that they coexisted. Oh no, that, or <laughs> that Jack and Stan were fictitious. No, I met Stan. So yeah, check checkmate. <laughs> dude, Stan hired. Me. Wait a minute. I... Wait a minute. What? <laughs> am I am I not real? Are you not real? There you go. <laughs> but <Yeah>. anyway, <laughs> I, I'm afraid I go back to not quite as far back as Denny. Definitely not quite as far back as Roy. But I go back a fair a fair piece. Mm -hmm. So, Chris, before, again, we wrap this episode up, I want to know how can people get a hold of you on social media? And, by the way, what are those Instagram numbers looking like now? How close are you to uh, 
overtaking that other uh, Instagram user. Who are we talking about? I believe Lady Gaga. Oh, I got a ways to go. <sighs> Check now. Uh, no, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, last time I looked, it's ninety, ninety-three and change. So I've got sort of inching towards ten thousand on Instagram. So um, I'm at Chris Claremont on Instagram, and uh, I think basically the same on uh, Facebook. Very cool. But the reality is, I have no idea. So um, probably check with for details but yeah you can find me on on instagram or facebook um and uh just check um my own site at chrisclaremont.com where we we do try to post everything you know my upcoming appearances now that we're actually making upcoming appearances mm-hmm. um you know not quite as much fun as bill maher but uh, looks like there'll be conventions this fall, so I'll be there. Well, that's what we're definitely looking forward to with some upcoming stuff. I know, I think Peter and I both <laughs> met you a couple years ago at Terrificon in the summer of uh, 2019, and you signed my I didn't. graphic. I there. 20, oh, no, you were not. You were in 2018. We both went. That's right. And my, I met him multiple I, times at the uh, New York Funny Book Fair at the Jacob K. Javits Center. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. Okay, but you signed my Murata the She-Wolf graphic novel. Oh, God, that was beautiful. John, <laughs> no, John is just uh, the, the most frustrating thing is there's one more part to go in that, which is where she gets back to Rome and uh, discovers the disadvantage of being the last surviving blood relative descendant of Julius Caesar, not to mention a, a young, a handsome young lady of marriageable age in the middle of Octavian's first years as emperor. I gotta ask, by the way, because Eddie just mentioned that book, and it, it comes off as such a deep cut. What is like the most obscure thing someone's had you sign at a convention before? Oh. Like just you saw, you're like, whoa! I don't even have this. Um, probably some of the original Captain Britons, the weeklies. Oh, you are um, gonna love me at New York Comic Con if oh, I see you. Probably the the uh, black and white articles and such that I did for um, Monsters Unleashed and Dracula Lives and Vampire Tales. And I'm getting a call from my wife saying, where the hell are you? You've been <laughs> on the phone for two hours. <laughs> so I think on that note, I will have to apologize and beg my, ne- beg my leave. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Chris Claremont. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!